So I don't want to take a lot of time because I want to move to our panel. But what I want to do is sort of set out just sort of the landscape that we will be examining today. And I apologize first for, for those of you who work in this field. You may be very well acquainted with some of the, the current issues. But because I also sense that there's people here who have not spent uh, years of their lives researching this, I just want to bring you dispatches from the field of, repro of assisted reproduction sort of random stories to spark your imagination. Last year, a British woman from East Sussex became pregnant at the age of 62. Uh, her pregnancy was, was, uh, was accomplished with the help of a gentleman named Dr. Severino Antonori, uh, an Italian doctor who has specialized in the field of pregnancy for women beyond the usual limits of conception. This particular woman, who did uh, conceive successfully and give, give birth to a son, already had three children whom she had conceived, given birth to, and raised earlier in her life. But she was remarried and wanted to start a family with her second husband at the age of 62. Another woman, a, uh, a, a professor whom some of you may even know, recently gave birth to twins, one of whom was half Vietnamese. Do the math one of whom was half Vietnamese. Turns out she too was a second marriage, second family, um, had gone out and uh, received eggs, acquired donor eggs from several donors, one of whom was Vietnamese. The woman in question was Caucasian. Having been frustrated with her first few attempts at IVF with donated eggs, she said to her doctor, I can't go through this anymore, put them all in. So the doctor transferred fertilized eggs from multiple donors, one of whom was Vietnamese. When the twins were born, one of them was half Vietnamese. There is a fascinating technology that is rapidly expanding called PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. I imagine we'll talk a bit about this today. Um, PGD is a technology in which uh, eggs are fertilized in, in the petri dish, as with IVF. And then when the, when the embryos are at the eight-cell stage, a technician will pluck a single cell from the eight-cell embryo and subject it to scrutiny. From this one cell, they can tell whether the embryo in question bears certain genetic mutations. For example, is this embryo going to produce a child with Tay-Sachs or a child with sickle cell anemia? The would-be parents can then choose to implant only the, quote, healthy embryos uh, back to the would-be mother. In the United Kingdom, which arguably has one of the sort of most complete regulatory systems for all forms of assisted reproduction, there are now 60 approved genetic markers for which parents can screen. These markers include not just the diseases that kill early in childhood, perhaps most, uh, most well-known of these being Tay-Sachs, but genes including BRCA1, which as you probably know, increases a woman's likelihood of getting breast cancer at some point in her life, and early onset Alzheimer's. So in other words, diseases that do not kill you, but diseases that may affect the embryo as it grows up later in its life. Once you use PGD, to select for complicated genetic mutations, like BRCA1, you can also select for what be, might be called easy genetic mutations, like sex. 
So at the fertility institutes right now, which is a, a string of, of fertility clinics around the country, um, any parent or would-be parent can come to the clinic, and for $18,490, according to their website from this week, you can produce a child of your preferred sex. So they will guarantee you a boy or a girl for $18,490. There's another company right now which is, which is going out there trying to, uh, to get venture capital. This is actually a benefit of being at Harvard Business School. You find out what the companies are trying to do. So these guys, a very interesting set of very smart people, have created what they call the universal Mendelian screen. This is a single chip test that will allow any individual, any of us in this room, to use a cotton swab and to test our entire genetic profile to identify anything for which we may be at genetic risk. Once the, we have identified our genetic risks as individuals, the company will allow you to get together with your proposed partner, figure out what the two of you might combine in terms of uh, producing a child with particular genetic risks, and then you can take the steps necessary to ensure that these genetic risks are not passed on to any children you might have. As the technologies get better and better, you can imagine the range of things for which one can screen grows uh, accordingly. And then finally, because we can't start off this day without talking about the story that has gripped the world and dominated the pages of People magazine, Nadia Solomon the single unemployed octomom who gave birth in January to octuplets, each weighing less than three and a half pounds. And I want to underscore that because the, the media focus has really been very much on her, her status as single, unemployed, and, and a mother already of six children, but focus also on the health risks for the children. Each of these babies was less than three and a half pounds, most of them clustering at the pound and a half stage. Um, I was also lucky, one of the strange benefits from having been at Harvard Business School, uh, for knowing some of the folks who run the hospital where she gave birth. Uh, 46 doctors in attendance. They have no idea yet what the total bill is going to be. All of these children are in neonatal intensive care. All of them almost certainly will have some kind of long-term health risks. And they are now about to begin a very complicated negotiation process between the insurer and the hospital who bears the costs of what will almost certainly have been a million-dollar-plus pregnancy. So what are the implications of these dispatches from assisted reproduction? Well, the most obvious one, and I do want to start out by underscoring this, is that these technologies have brought a, a new hope for millions of infertile people around the world. So these technologies at some level have been miraculous. There are now over a million babies, children, people, who could not have been conceived without the use of these technologies. And just uh, demographically speaking, if we have students in this room, some number of them were probably IVF babies or babies at one point conceived with the help of assisted reproduction. What has also happened, of course, is that assisted reproduction has made it possible for different kinds of people to become parents. We have broken down the boundaries of what was once seen as the nuclear family where the only way a child was brought into this world was as the result of, of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman married to each other and living together. We now have an increasing number of single women in particular becoming parents, lesbian couples becoming parents, gay men becoming parents. 
these things, it's, it's, it's apologizing for using the pun, were truly inconceivable 10, 15 years ago. It is the right word, despite the pun. Um, we also have, and, and this, this often falls out of certain discussions of these technologies, but I think it's quite important. We have really opened up new avenues for curing or eliminating some devastating illnesses. So to go back to Tay-Sachs again, because I think it's really such a sort of a distinctive disease to think about, if a child is born with Tay-Sachs, that child is going to die 100% of the time, usually before he or she reaches the age of three. It is a painful death. There is no cure. There is no treatment. With PGD, babies, families that know they're at risk of passing on Tay-Sachs to their children can now avoid that risk. Moreover, as scientists get better and better at understanding genetic development beginning at the eight-cell stage, they are really starting to understand at a molecular level the development of certain diseases. Um, and cancer in particular has a lot of very interesting and complicated connections because essentially a cancer of any sort is the unstoppable replication of cells. So there, there are fascinating early stage research projects being done that are taking what we've learned somewhat coincidentally from assisted reproduction and carrying it into other fields of, of biology. We also have, as a result of this, um, in many respects, the entire field of stem cell medicine has come out of assisted reproduction. Again, this was not anybody's intention at the time. But if you look at what's happening at st on stem cell science, it is very closely linked particularly to the te technologies of IVF. At the same time, though, and this is really where our discussion, I imagine, is going to focus for the rest of the day, the technologies of assisted reproduction clearly raise a whole host of very complicated social, ethical, moral, political, economic issues. Let me, again, just give you a very quick landscape of what some of these issues are, and then we will be unpackaging them for the rest of the day. First one is the question of commodification. Are we, by using the techniques of assisted reproduction, commodifying the experience of birth, pregnancy, and childhood? I think this is a complicated question that deserves and has already received a great deal of scrutiny. What does it mean when money is involved in the creation of a life? because money is involved in the creation of a life. All of the technologies that we have right now cost money. Uh, they, are, they are complicated, they're expensive, they don't come for free. If parents use these technologies to produce their children, are they commodifying their children in some way? What does the word commodification mean in this context? Because so commodification, like other words we use today, sort of has nasty implications. We presume commodification is bad. But what does it mean? What is the bad part of commodification? Does the entry of money into what used to be a non-financial relationship in and of itself represent something bad? Are the children in this case being exploited in some sense because money was involved in their birth? Take it up a related notch. Many parts of assisted reproduction right now involve what could impartially be called third-party players. So old-fashioned reproduction, there was the man, the woman, the child. Now we have sperm donors, egg donors increasingly, and in many cases womb donors, 
or surrogates. All of these parties are paid for. Egg donors do not donate eggs. They get paid for their eggs. And if any of you have read any, any ads in the back of the spec or any other Ivy League college newspaper, every day there are advertisements for elite Ivy League eggs. Are the women who get paid to donate their eggs, which in and of itself is a semantic conundrum, are they exploited in some ways? Do we view our children differently if pieces of them were purchased? Because that is what happens when you use egg donation. You are purchasing a genetic piece of your child. Does the price matter? And as some of you may know, this is, that, this is actually an issue that I've written a fair amount on. Is it different if you go to a low-end fertility clinic and buy $2,000 eggs versus advertising in the spec and buying $25,000 eggs? Is one of these more or less exploitative than the other? How do we feel about the rights of women to sell their eggs for above average prices? What can we sell? As a society, we've gotten very used to the idea that men can sell sperm. We're more uncomfortable with the idea of women selling eggs. Obviously, there's medical differences. Are there other broader underlying issues there? Um, I should say what's interesting is there's no price differentiation in sperm. Apologies to the gentleman in the room. Kind of all sperm is the same price. <laughs> eggs, however, are differentiated with better eggs costing more. So it's an interesting market differential. Um, there are also clearly, very clearly, massive gender issues that emerge from this. Because the, the expansion of ART, assisted reproduction technologies, appears to affect men and women differently. Right off the bat, the sort of implications, if you will, or the improvements have been more market for women than for men. Uh, men do remain fertile longer in their lives than women do, thanks to Mother Nature. It clearly was unfair. Um, so the, the extensions that we've seen of fertility are much more extensions for women than they are for men. By the same token, it's easier for women to use many of these technologies than it is for men. So for example, uh, lesbian couples can now have a child quite easily, really just using donated sperm or bought sperm. Um, gay, for gay men who are now uh, conceiving and having and raising children, it is a much more complicated procedure because gay men, at least with the current state of technologies, have to purchase eggs and wombs and IVF. So for a gay male couple to have a baby now, it's around $150,000. And it's also very, very difficult for gay men to adopt children. So arguably men are at, more, interestingly, more of a disadvantage gay men than our, than our lesbian women. Um, we also have, and I want to underscore this just because this is a big part of what my work has been about, I think we tend to not give enough focus to the underlying health risks here. A lot of focus to sort of the moral issues. I think we need more focus on the health issues because I think they're real. Regardless of what you think about the Octomom and her strange fascination with Angelina Jolie, the real problem there, in my opinion, is the health risks that she imposed on these babies. The one, the strongest statistical correlation we know is that if you, as a baby, are part of a high-order pregnancy, your chances of living a healthy life are diminished. This is true for twins, and it's especially true as you start going to triplets and higher-order births. Being part of a multiple pregnancy is a very, very dangerous condition 
certainly for the babies, but also for the mother as well. I think we need to be giving a lot more attention to the long-term risks of hormonal exposure to all of the parties in this equation. Um, we don't really know what the, the long-term risks are for a mother who becomes pregnant through repeated uh, exposure to very high uh, doses of hormones for the egg donors. Um, what does it mean for women, young women, to be, be injected with very large amounts of hormones so that they can produce eggs for what becomes another woman's child? And something which rarely makes the papers, what are the health implications for the children? What does it mean for babies to be conceived in an environment of massive female hormones? And there's some very early speculation that for male children, having been conceived with that many female hormones in their mother's system may have some long-term risks. We have to be looking at the fertility of children who were conceived through IVF. Are there any impact uh, effects on their fertility? Uh, three more risks very quickly I want to identify. Identity risks. What is the right of the child who is conceived through assisted reproduction to know his or her genetic origins? At the moment, there is no right. The child is conceived, the child moves on, it's over. I would suggest that if you look at the history of adoption, we are making precisely the same mistakes with assisted reproduction that we made with adoption, believing that it is in everyone's interest not to know. As we are seeing now the first generation of donor-assisted babies becoming adults, they are leading a charge to unlock their own genetic identity. It is beginning with children conceived from sperm donation just because that's how the chronologies worked, that they were the, they're the first ones to reach adulthood. And there's a lot of interesting uh, activism going on for these children to identify their genetic fathers and what turns out to be of more interest to many of them, their genetic half-siblings. And there was just a report released, I believe, yesterday or published in Human Reproduction that there is a startling occurrence of multiple order half-siblings. So most children who have traced their half-siblings find out they have 10 or 11 because successful sperm donors tend to be in demand, and so they produce uh, large numbers of children. How do we think about that? Um, there are issues around equity, and I'm sure some of our panelists will talk about this. Because assisted reproduction is expensive, it's primarily rich people who can use it. How do we feel about some portion of the population being able to use these technologies and create children, and other people who have the double bad luck of being both infertile and poor, having virtually no access to this, except in the 14 states where there is some insurance coverage, and in Europe where there is much more of this inside uh, national health systems. And then finally, and this is, I, I just finished writing a paper on this yesterday that I'm gonna, I'm gonna present at Michelle Goodwin's conference next month. How do we think about issues of biological free will? How much free will should individuals have in this wild new world of assisted reproduction? And I think this is a very tough question because for the last 40 years and perhaps even 60 or 70 years, the, the word choice has been associated with reproductive freedom. That if you believe that women have the right to control their bodies and their reproductive proclivities, then we should have no interference in, in choice, that women should choose 
their reproductive fates. How far do we take choice? Should a woman like Nadia Suleiman be able to choose to produce eight children at one time? Does it affect our view of her choice if those eight children are conceived in addition to six existing children? I think it's quite terrifying, I imagine, to most people in this room to think about any constraints on a woman's choice. But have these exploding technologies now pushed us to a place where we might want to imagine some limits on choice in the reproductive field? And if so, there's the real killer question, who creates these limits and who enforces them? I think most of us would probably say that the octomom did not behave in a completely responsible way. Yet where is the locus of her irresponsibility? Is it the fact that she's poor? Is it the fact that she's single? Is it the fact that she decided to engage in a very unhealthy and risky pregnancy? So let me just end by throwing the, these questions out there. You know, is there a point at which technology turns choice on its head? What is the feminist response to this evolving state of affairs? Or probably the feminist response is to this evolving state of affairs. How does scholarship, from which disciplines, affect our understanding of it? If we believe that this area, as I do, is going to continue to expand and continue to raise even more puzzling questions, what modes and fields of scholarship do we need, most importantly, to be looking at this area? We are very lucky today to have an, a wonderfully, wonderful group of panelists, both now and over the course of the day, looking at these issues from a whole range of perspectives. Um, what I'm going to do is, because we just, uh, with the room change, we have a little bit of a, a, a technological obstacle, I'm going to introduce all of the panelists to you, but then they are going to come up one at a time, speak from the podium, because several of them have uh, presentations for you. And then once we're done with the presentations, they will all reconvene on the dais, and we will throw the floor open for questions, comments, and debate. But let me, and I should, I should also say, uh, for those of you who may be new to this field, this, we have like the rock stars here today. These are really the folks who have made this field. So, so kudos to Janet and, and Kisela for bringing them here today. We will begin with Lori Andrews. Uh, Lori is the dis a distinguished professor of law at Chicago Kent College. She's also the director for, of the Institute for Science, Law, and Technology at the Illinois Institute of, Institute of Technology. She was one of the first people to write in this field. Her books, for those of you who have not read them, are amazing. And she also writes fiction, which I just find utterly mind-boggling. Um, Lori will be followed by Wendy Chafkin. Uh, Wendy is also an early uh, uh, worker in this field and has written some fascinating studies. Wendy's professor of clinical population and family health across the street at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. She's the director of the Soros Reproductive Health and Rights Fellowship and chair of the board of directors of physicians for reproductive choice and health. She will be followed by Leith Mullings, a distinguished professor of anthropology at the City University of New York Graduate Center also an author of multiple books and articles in this field, um, including Resistance and Resilience, The Sojourner Sodrum, and The Social Context of Reproduction in Harlem. And then finally, we will close the panel with Loretta Ross. 
who is the national coordinator and founding member of Sister Song, a reproductive justice collective. So thank you very much to all of them. And Lori, the floor is yours. Well, the politics of reproduction really did take center stage last month with the birth of octuplets uh, to uh, Nadja. And uh, this event was a perfect storm of societal tensions involving single motherhood, pro-life, pro-choice concerns, uh, questions about money. Here she's raising funds for the baby on the site. And, and also questions about the limits of medical self-regulation of this $4 billion industry. Infertility specialists referred to the pregnancy as a rare event upon which we should not base regulation. But the event was really far from rare. Prior to the advent of fertility drugs, we would get, naturally, the birth of as only one set of quadruplets a year. Now, over 100 sets of quadruplets are born every year. Uh, and the Fertility Society, the National Medical Organization, actually has guidelines that say, in a woman under age, 35, you implant one embryo, or in extraordinary circumstances, two. Uh, and uh, Michael Cambrava, Nadia's doctor, actually implanted six, two of which twinned. And so he was far in excess of the guidelines. And to the infertility doctors who say that's rare, um, at the Institute for Science, Law, and Technology that I direct, we looked at the 2006 implant uh, transfer rates of embryos for all the clinics in the United States and found that 78% implanted more uh, than the recommended limit uh, under the medical profession guidelines. A Washington clinic, for example, in young women implanted an average of five embryos. And yet, when we analyzed the top dozen clinics and their success rates, they actually had a lower success rate than uh, clinics overall. And so the optimal rate, according to various studies, even with older women, is a max of two embryos. So far from being rare, the octuplet case is the tip of the iceberg in the politics of reproduction. Now, I think the risks to women are growing in the area of reproductive and genetic technologies. And here are some of the risks I'll talk about. Inappropriate experimentation on women, deficient laws governing these technologies, viewing women merely as vessels to produce healthy babies in the future, or embryos or fetuses for stem cell therapy. And uh, Deborah talked about the risk of commodification. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, comes from the art world, and we'll be hearing more about that at our lunch speech, but I was in New York a few years ago to see an exhibit by Chrissy Conant. And what she did, she's an artist, she underwent the in vitro procedure, but not to have a baby, to make art out of it. And she had 13 eggs removed, and she put them in little caviar jars. And so the gallery had like a deli case that was refrigerated, and she even designed uh, a, uh, a top for that, which is a picture of her in a, very, in a vaguely sturgeon-looking dress. Uh, and you would go into the gallery, see her eggs, but you'd also see the form she filled out, like egg donors do, you know, what was her IQ and so forth. And she was really getting this message across about the market in tissue, the market in eggs. You know, I have been in this field for a while, and the history of uh, reproductive and genetic technology has been a history of unethical experimentation on women. Uh, you may be shocked to learn that with uh, research on the birth control pill, some women seeking contraceptives were not told they were part of a research study and that half of them were getting the placebo. So they would go in you know, to a university clinic, 
they would think they were getting uh, a birth control pill, and 10 of the 76 women in one study receiving the placebo became pregnant, even though they'd gone for that service uh, in order to get contraceptives. I saw the same thing happening in the development of in vitro and other reproductive technologies. Uh, doctors would tell women who were undergoing certain pelvic surgery for other reasons. Um, sometimes they tell them to get uh, to have sex with their husband before coming in for the surgery, and they would remove eggs or embryos unbeknownst to the women. And in fact, in the medical literature, and some of it, I must say, occurred at Columbia, uh, they actually had, the Columbia professor had a term for it. He called it poaching eggs. Uh, apparently, Louise Brown, the, first, uh, the mother of the first test tube baby in vitro birth, uh, also didn't realize how experimental this was. She had uh, been convinced, uh, had gotten the impression uh, from her doctor that many women had undergone this procedure before. And it was only when uh, reporters started, started popping out of the laundry bins at the hospital where she was that she realized she was the first in the world. And I've seen that with embryo freezing, egg donation, egg freezing, and so forth. Women are led to believe the technology is actually more established than it is. So from a lawyer's perspective, there's a, a, a regulatory abyss, an incredible lack of oversight of this field. So we've got experimental procedures being introduced into the U.S., into women, without sufficient protections for the subjects of these experiments. And why does that happen here? In part, it happens because in vitro fertilization and reproductive technologies are not regulated in the same way as other medical technologies. And in other areas of medicine, initially the procedures are funded by the federal government, like if heart surgery or transplants or so forth, and the safest practices are developed. But because of pro-life opposition to any federal funding of in vitro fertilization, it did not go through this procedure. And amazingly, in the United States, the protections, the federal regulations that protect subjects of human research only apply to federally funded research. And so if it's done by biotech companies or by clinics without federal funding, it doesn't have to meet those standards like an advanced review by an institutional review board. Now what about other agencies? The FDA also doesn't regulate in this area. So unlike new drugs, new medical equipment with, which go through an oversight procedure by the FDA, We've got in vitro fertilization and other procedures introduced in 400 clinics across the United States. Reproductive technology also differs because only 15 states mandate any sort of health insurance coverage for infertility services. And so what you have, in it, have is a real competition for wealthy patients. And what do I see in that? I see some doctors reporting as pregnancies, small hormonal blips, where the embryo implants for a day and then, you know, to, to increase their success rates in ads or putting in as many as 10 embryos to be able to uh, advertise, you know, that they are the cutting-edge clinic. Um, lack of insurance does play in in other ways because uh, sometimes when you have insurance companies involved, they'll do their own studies, HMOs and so forth, to assure that a procedure is ready for prime time before they reimburse. Now, what about the other legal approach, which is medical malpractice litigation? Again, that doesn't really work here. Uh, first of all, the success rate is low. Even today, only 35% of the in vitro procedures actually lead to a live baby. So if I go in and I just think I'm in the unlikely, unlucky 65%, if I don't get a baby, I don't really necessarily think that my clinic has totally screwed up in some step in the procedure. 
And uh, as Deborah pointed out, the risk to children may not be apparent yet uh, for many years uh, in terms of their own reproductive abilities. So we've got uh, in vitro and related procedures being introduced without sufficient animal experimentation, without rigorous data collection, and so forth. And in fact, in vitro was applied to baboons, chimpanzees, and rhesus monkeys after it was applied to women, leading embryologist Don Wolf to observe, quote, women served as the model for non-human primates in one of his scientific books. So contrast that to the United Kingdom, where there's a licensing scheme for in vitro clinics and a limit on the number of embryos that can be implanted. In Germany, you can actually go to jail for three years if you as a doctor put in more than three embryos. Here we have a sort of free-for-all where we have lots of issues but very little oversight. It's also quite uh, difficult to think of the directions we might want to take the regulation. It's a tough issue because women's reproductive behavior has been overregulated in the past to control their sexuality and in an attempt to create more worthy children. Uh, in the United States 100 years ago, there were a lot of cases, including Supreme Court cases, suggesting that women should be forbidden from doing certain types of work, generally the higher paying work, um, including being lawyers, on the grounds it might make them less fit to reproduce. Uh, here's a quote from one of those cases, um, 1908, that, that there was a way in which women were responsible for uh, the next generation, the well-being of the race, producing children, and so you couldn't put them in those uh, jobs that uh, took intellectual or physical prowess. Um, the premium on healthy babies also can be seen in more recent cases where women are put in jail or are institutionalized for refusing cesarean sections. And luckily, we are seeing uh, a reversal where the court cases now allow women to make those decisions in large measure because the predictions that physicians were making was not, in fact, correct. I remember one Georgia case where they said 100% risk the fetus would die, 50% risk the woman would die. If she didn't have a C-section, the woman left the hospital, gave birth in a church, far less safe place. You know, you would think uh, both woman and, chi uh, and child were fine. In the Georgia Medical, Burden, they, uh, Georgia Medical Bulletin, they said um, court orders C-section, mother nature reverses on appeal. <laughs> so what are the trends today? The trends are with genetics uh, in terms of the relation to reproduction and trying to have women uh, give uh, birth to healthier babies. Some physicians now will not treat women during pregnancy unless they're willing to have a whole battery of genetic tests. And there's really intriguing research coming out about how women are blamed for the health of their children if the women refuse to have the genetic tests. So there are studies in Great Britain, for example, that suggest that you know, if a woman from a remote area without access to uh, amniocentesis gives birth to a child with Down syndrome, better medical care is given to that child, the, ch the woman's given more support, where uh, it's a different story if she's refused amniocentesis, then she's blamed for that birth. Uh, it's very interesting, and it is an issue that divides along reproductive lines because um, some of the technologies that are being used are ones that focus on women exclusively, 
And some of the studies suggest that this is more of an issue to women than to men. It's a Swedish study, 82% of women felt that the couple should make the decision about genetics. Men overwhelmingly felt the doctor should make the decision about what genetic tests should be used. Um, and it may be more important for women than men to refuse genetic services because they, women, perceive the risk of technology more. Uh, and interestingly, non-white men are similar to women in that respect. So a really interesting series of studies has been going on, and the first ones asked, well, is it because women and uh, men of color just don't understand science? And no, you know, they found that they did understand science and risk and so forth. But that, in fact, uh, and it wasn't related to fear of a recent technological, you know, hazard, a meltdown at Chernobyl. And so the researchers in this case, which found systematic differences between uh, women's perception of risk and men's, suggested, quote, perhaps white males see less risk in the world because they create, manage, control, and benefit from much of technology. Another way that society might make feel, women feel guilty about uh, the health of a fetus even with a slight disability is the sort of, not only the anger you saw about the ectuplets, but the uh, fact that Brie Walker Lampley, who is a very uh, popular radio talk show host, was roundly criticized for having her own natural child because she has a slight webbing of one hand. So she got, uh, it's a medical condition which has not prevented any, her own success, but uh, her radio talk show audience and others made a huge amount of calls saying this was irresponsible and immoral to give birth to a child with a defect. She took it up with the Federal Communications Commission uh, against the radio stations that aired these various things, but her complaint was denied. So what are some of the other things that might be uh, used in a pressured way by women to upgrade their offspring? Uh, we've heard about uh, the ads uh, that are going on in terms of offering as much as $100,000 for a woman's egg. Um, I posed as a woman who was interested in getting sperm at the Nobel Prize Sperm Bank in California and saw what they had to offer me. It was fun to look through the profiles, which in the bottom had all these, a real mover and a shaker in addition to his Nobel Prize and so forth. And, and, and we are seeing um, some distinction in prices for men. Like, Deborah, I don't know if you know, the clinics now in Virginia and California offer more money to male sperm donors who are lawyers or doctors. So, I mean, that kind of helps. And then, no, yeah, no, artists need not apply. Um, and this is a website of a man who sells his own sperm for $4,000 a vial um, because he claims to, in his family tree, trace his genes back to six Catholic saints and several European royal families. <laughs> Uh, thousands of couples do turn to the internet to find genetic parents for their future children. They view pictures of sperm donors and egg donors, read pages of description about their hobbies, their SAT scores, philosophy of life. Uh, this was a short-lived site where you could bid on models' eggs. Um, and there's a recent Wall Street Journal article about the clinic opening up that's using some of the uh, complex disease testing to techniques to assure couples they could get blonde-haired, green-eyed babies. Now, one mother uh, told a reporter, why is it okay for people to choose the best house, the best schools, the best surgeon, the best car, but not try to have the best baby possible? 
Yet is it so wonderful, sometimes reproductive technologies will be used uh, due to so -so social biases. And I think of the woman in England who chose, who's a black woman who chose a white egg donor for herself uh, to create a child who is less likely to be discriminated against. So are we, in fact, enabling social prejudices to consider, to, to continue through this? Uh, my own sense is that creating a baby is beginning to uh, resemble uh, buying a car where you figure out what extras you want in it, and yet the child of a model can be downright homely. You know, if you look at that website with the model, you, know, you don't know how much is from their personal trainer, how much is from surgery, and so forth. And um, Nobel Prizes tend to be awarded more in depar academic departments, like the Chicago Economics Department, than in families, you know, and in fact, William Shockley, who donated sperm to the Nobel Prize Sperm Bank, once said that his own children with his wife were a, quote, regrettable regression to the mean. So you may not want the sperm from Nobel Awards. So how, how are parents going to feel if they pay for smart sperm and equals MC squared isn't the first thing out of the kid's mouth? Uh, already, one couple sued a sperm bank. They had three healthy, lovely children, but they sued a sperm bank in part because they said if a different donor had been chosen, the kids would have been more attractive. So we're going to get more choices as technology uh, continues. Here's um, a tobacco plant with a, um, with a gene from a, a, a jellyfish, so you get a tobacco plant that glows in the dark, and we can use genetic engineering techniques on people as well. Here are the, some suggestions already. Uh, use genetic engineering to uh, expand people's vision to the near ultraviolet, and from the near ultraviolet to near infrared. Add genes in so people's urine changes colors when they have certain diseases. And, and so what's the demand for this? I'm on a March of Dimes Bioethics Committee. We did a Lou Harris poll. We found that 42% of potential parents said that they would use genetic engineering to upgrade their children children's IQ, the children mentally. So that's 42%. 43% would make them stronger. And a, another study showed a third of potential parents would use genetic engineering on embryos to make sure their children had an appropriate sexual orientation. So that's big. Four million births a year. Got a lot of parents interested in. Bigger market than Prozac or Viagra. Uh, so what will we be able to do? I taught at Princeton a few years ago, and a biologist there put a gene in mice, a single gene, to make them smarter. Now, I've lived in New York City in the past. The last thing I want is smarter mice. <laughs> but um, the resulting animals, which are called the Doogie Hauser mice, uh, were able to learn mazes more quickly. Um, yet, and, and so the, the researchers started getting calls from you know, potential parents saying, can you put the human version of that mouse in my embryos to, you know, that gene in my embryos to make my children smarter? And yet research at another university by other researchers found that these, these mice were more susceptible to pain. So imagine the exquisite sort of Sophie's choices we'd be making about our children if we allow this to proceed. So ethical and policy issues, daunting uh, but yet we're the generation, you all, the students here, are going to decide. Are we going to live among cloned human beings, watch sports played by genetically enhanced athletes? Um, I think we need to increase the safety standards uh, for the procedures so that the women and children involved are, are, are uh, better protected. We need more adequate information. We need to curtail medically 
unsound procedures. Uh, and Deborah brought up the issue of what rights do the children have to know more about their genetic identities. There's that website, donorsibling.com. Uh, they have matched thousands of siblings, but they've also were surprised that 750 sperm donors registered for that site. So maybe sperm donation isn't the lark that we think it is. They were hoping to meet their children. And a sad thing has happened because some of these donors are willing to meet the first child, the second child, the 16th child, but there are donors on there who learned that they have as many as 200 children. So what we have coming up are very little movement in the, in the state legislatures, but we do have a Missouri law that was proposed in January to allow children of sperm and egg donation to know the identity of their parents. So I'm honored to be part of this um, 34th annual BCRW conference because in part, I think the people in this room can provide us with the sort of careful assessment that we need and analyses that lead to good policy. So thank you so much for inviting me. Wendy Chavkin, hello. And if I had had genetically engineered vision, I wouldn't have had to borrow somebody else's reading glasses today. <laughs> um, I think I might be the only medical person here today, so I'm going to quickly run through what we do know and don't know about some of the medical risks. Deborah did it briefly, did some of it briefly, but I'm just going to trot it out. Um, what we do know is that infants born of IVF and some of the associated technologies have a higher risk of being low birth weight, even those that are singletons. And certainly that's true for those that are multiples. Um, as Deborah, I believe it was, mentioned, we have seen a dramatic increase in multiple births. Okay, here we have a variety of countries, and the real point of this is just to show you that the line is going up in a pretty dramatic fashion and pretty consistently. It used to be in the United States that low birth weight was associated with a whole host of socioeconomic deprivation markers. That is still true, and it is now also associated with socioeconomic privilege. And this is actually um, significant enough on a population basis that we can now see a bimodal distribution. From a public health point of view, that is a big deal. Um, as has been mentioned by the other folks, in the United States we do not have any kinds of regulation, although we do have clinical guidelines, um, advising people not to, not, advising physicians not to implant more than two. In Europe, it is absolutely normative to implant one and perhaps two, and here it's a much more of a free-for-all. We do, oops, backing up, sorry. Um, we do also know that there is an increased risk of certain anomalies, certain birth defects that come along with the use of these technologies. Now, there are rare defects, and an increased risk means they're still rare, but an increase is also of significance. Then there's a lot we simply don't know. 
We know that some of the embryos that have been subjected to prenatal genetic diagnosis get implanted and make it to term and get born. We know that piece of good news. We don't have a clue as to what it might mean to have taken two cells out of eight cells, what that means for the long term. We just don't know. I hope it doesn't mean anything, because there are a bunch of kids like this now. Similarly, when people um, undergo the stimulatory part of these procedures and end up with a bunch of eggs, more than they, um, and then a bunch of embryos, more than they want to implant, because they're being safer, some of them are freezing these embryos in case this first round doesn't succeed and they don't carry a pregnancy to term. And some of them are later going back and successfully using these frozen embryos, meaning that they carry to term and a baby gets born, or two, or three. We know that that has happened. We know that much good news. We don't know what it means to have been a frozen embryo. Again, I hope it doesn't mean anything because there are a bunch of kids out there who have been through this. But the fact of the matter is, this has become widespread use and we don't know. What about for women? There has been, let me just also say, there have been a bunch of studies trying to follow up the children. And it looks as if you are born normal birth weight and don't have one of these uh, birth defects I mentioned, that you are neurocognitively developmentally okay. If you're low birth weight, you are subject to all the neurocognitive, developmental, vision, hearing risks that anybody who is very low birth weight is subject to, which is a significant risk. Okay, let's turn to the women. What are the risks for the women? In the short term, if you undergo these procedures where you get uh, these massive doses of hormones so that you uh, produce a, a nice quote, crop of eggs at once, which can then be harvested. Um, there is a risk for something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which can be very serious and can be medically treated. Again, that's rare, that's immediate. We really do not know, and this was mentioned by the previous speakers, what are the long-term risks for women for undergoing this kind of high-dose hormonal stimulation, particularly if they undergo it multiple times. There have been some studies that have been provided some reassuring data so far. They've looked at some of the hormonally associated cancers and have not yet seen any increases in breast or um, ovarian cancer. But I would suggest to you that these studies have not really been able to follow people for the length of time you would need to follow people, nor do they have the proper sample size to enable you to feel that we've got um, robust data. Again, I hope it's okay, because there are a lot of people who've been through this. Um, as was mentioned when we talked about the octuplet mother, there are, and of course she is an extreme, but there are risks to women for carrying multiple pregnancies. It is a tax on one's cardiovascular system and respiratory system that is quite, quite significant. Again, not studied, and we can't really tell you what it is, what, what the scoop is. We can tell you that women who have, you know, old-fashioned multiples 
are, are people that we're concerned about. The other thing is that many of these technologies, and I'll get to this in a little bit, are used by women who are older. I'm sorry, everybody, this is not news you want to hear, but the health risks associated with having a baby at older ages increase. It's the bad news. It's that old mother nature who sometimes does you a favor and sometimes is really mean. And on this one, there's associated risk, there's risk associated with maternal age, partly because the older you are, the more likely you are to have accumulated both exposures to noxious things and also some of the chronic conditions that just mount with age, like high blood pressure, glucose abnormalities, some of other cardiovascular compromise. Um, and so I think really what I would like to sum up this part of what I have to say is that all of this stuff has gone into widespread use before we really know the long-term implications. Um, and also, I would like to suggest that it is a jumble of high science and low science and no science. I mean, anybody who thinks that SAT scores and good at tennis resides in the egg, <laughs> or the sperm, but okay. I now would like to just move over a little bit and suggest a context for us to think about this. Now, I'm putting forward my view of it all, and it's uh, the construct I'm using I call globalized motherhood. First, let's start with the fact that I was born at the tail end of the baby boom. Right after World War II, we had a high fertility period, death and destruction, followed by a period in which people had a, the, let me just throw in a demographic term, which is the total fertility rate. It doesn't matter. What it means is the average number of kids each woman has in a given area, in a given time. The total fertility rate at which a population reproduces itself, meaning that its size will stay steady, is 2.1 kids per woman. I mean, that makes sort of intuitive sense. Back in the days when you had two parents, if you have two kids, you're holding steady. Well, since the 60s, shortly, shortly after the end of the baby boom, we see a dramatic decline in numbers of kids per woman all over the world. Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, is the only part of the world that has not experienced this yet, although northern Africa has, which is why my, the Africa bar still shows a decline. But if you look at every other part of the world, you see that there is this same consistent pattern. And of course, Europe is at the very lowest. This slide doesn't really show you uh, the replacement level. But the United States is at replacement level, and that may be part of the reason we are not participating in the very sophisticated policy conversations that are going on in Europe around this issue. So you have this dramatic decline in numbers of kids per woman taking place over the last several decades. What's this about? I don't 
you know, pretend to offer you a clear-cut explanation, but I can tell you several things that happened at the same time. One, the advent of modern contraception and legal abortion. Another, women's education, women's participation in the labor force, delayed age of marriage. And when I say these things, I'm talking broad strokes. I'm not just talking United States. I'm talking all over Europe and in different uh, swaths in other parts of the world. Um, later age at first marriage and later age at first birth. The final common pathway that's going to link me back to assisted reproductive technologies is later age at first birth. Now, Here's the mean Mother Nature bit of it all again. Fertility, meaning your ability to get pregnant and carry a pregnancy to term, I'm sorry, it declines with age. It really does. <laughs> I teach graduate students in public health and medical residents, and they hate this. <laughs> Which is why I'm saying it so apologetically. In fact, I've had people tell me they can't even bear to take the course. Um, <laughs> but what you see is the fact that our social realities and our biological realities are out of sync now. So what we have seen is a dramatic inc increase in, well, let me pause for one second and say, so women are educated, women are working, women are deferring first birth. There are a host of policy responses that one, could one, one government could have to this issue. Again, in Europe, there is pretty much consensus that you have to have what are called work-family reconciliation policies, meaning a whole bunch of policies that make it possible for women and men to be parents and to participate in the paid labor force at the same time. So there's a bunch of these things. They include things like paid parental leave. They include time to take care of sick children. They include, in some cases, they include subsidized and high-quality child care. There, there's a whole bevy of them. In the rest of the highly developed world, there is consensus that this is a necessary part of how one is going to address the decline in number of births per woman and the delay in maternal age. As you may have noticed, we are not having that conversation here. Um, However, even in places where they're having the conversation, the actual benefits that are being provided are quite uneven and, um, you know, vary in their ability to make people have comfortable, easy lives of it. I would say the two spots that we should look to and really study are the Scandinavian countries and France. Okay, so now I'm going to get over to my globalized motherhood notion, other than to have, I hope, been persuasive that this is a worldwide phenomenon. Um, and what you see is that as this has happened, we see a dramatic increase in the use of these technologies. I've given you a US slide because we're a US crowd, but I could show you this same slide for all the other parts of the world. Uneven, but the same pattern. 
for um, many of the other parts of the world I talked about. Um, and as has been mentioned, we have seen a dramatic increase in recent years in OVA donation. This one doesn't even have the US on it. And here you see real spottiness. I also think for the rest of the day's discussion, when people really try to talk in a more fine-tuned way about issues of exploitation and issues of which women are getting which body bits from which other women, it's a complicated story. Those of you who are Barnard and Columbia students of privilege know that you too are being targeted and being asked to be overdonors. That group in Spain, that high-level group, those are college students. At the same time, we have also seen a dramatic increase in the transport of babies around the world, known as intra-country adoption. There's been a slight falling off in the last couple of years, and that has been due um, partly to a variety of scandals, a variety of, of uh, concerns, and somewhat to China becoming uh, both concerned about uh, some internal pushback and also concerned about the fact that single mothers were adopting Chinese girls, and they are, made that more difficult. But nonetheless, you can see that in, in a kind of time parallel way, we started seeing dramatic increase in people from one part of the world getting a hold of babies from other parts of the world. In the United States, one way we can measure this is on the number of immigrant visas given to infants. So here's my effort to show you that. Um, this slide is hard to look at, for which I apologize, but I just wanted to show you the top uh, sending countries on the top of the slide and the top receiving countries on the bottom part of the slide. And again, and these, you know, these will alter if you look at different uh, five-year periods, but the U.S. is the top receiver. That's consistent. And the other thing that this slide has, and again, it's hard to look at this, um, but it just is there to show you that the patterns are not simple. You have countries with very low fertility rates, like China and Korea and Eastern European countries, sending babies to countries whose fertility rates are perhaps even a little bit higher than theirs, like the US and Western European countries. The adoption scholars, and I am not one, the adoption scholars, you know, say that the sort of ground settings for high levels of sending were war, poverty, and gender discrimination, which includes stigma on uh, unmarried motherhood. Um, I think that, too, has gotten more complicated in recent years. And the final piece I'd like to interject into this notion of globalized motherhood is that as the women of the highly developed world struggle the, to work very hard and try to have children and are still disproportionately responsible for the domestic side of life, they are importing women from all around the world to take care of these domestic tasks. And so the third piece I would like to suggest is 
the trans, the global um, traveling of women to do nanny work for other women. Uh, and that's just a few more facts on that. So, so far, both Deborah and Laurie have talked about many, many of the questions that we have about all this stuff. And, uh, you know, we could, we could go all day just listing the questions, much less even ever getting to talk about any of them. But I think the implications for women, for their health, for their relationship to their self, to their relationship to their selves in terms of body bits, how are you relating to yourself as a, as a producer of eggs, as a uterus, as a purchaser of somebody else's, as a provider of genetic material? I mean, these are really weird questions that need to be thought through. How are you relating to yourself in terms of gender roles? What does it mean? What does it mean to be so eager to have, quote, your own baby, that you are going to have a whole bunch of other people's genetic and gestational services. What does it mean? What are we even talking about? Um, what does it mean for the babies? A lot of these questions have been raised about identity, about commodity, about citizenship. You know, it also, it's, it gets wild. I mean, there's been a lot of pushback from the Korean girls who were adopted here and are now back in Korea angry and looking for their birth mothers. We have yet to see what's going to happen for these very complicated uh, heritage children that we're talking about now, but with the, with the use of these technologies. And also, let me just say that in the adoption setting, some of the sending countries are now very keen to get remittances from those grown-up children who've been sent to wealthier lands and are now able to um, produce monies. What does it mean for countries? I mean, Laurie talked about the lack of regulation we have in the United States and contrasted it with a more regulatory system in the UK. Nowadays, people travel. They travel, they use the internet, and our ability to maintain our own regulatory schema, whoever we are, whatever country we are, are really, really tested. So it becomes, I think, really tough for us to think about and really tough to figure out what kinds of policies would we even like to advocate. Um, then there's the obvious, the relationship between the more and less affluent parts of the world um, and the various players involved. A questions ab about how religions enter into this. Not time today to go into it, but just as a teaser to tell you that aside from Catholicism, which flat out says no to all of it, branches of most of the other religions have accommodated these things in fascinating ways and managed to um, reinterpret uh, doctrine and text to incorporate this. Um, what does it mean, back to being a country, about your national health system? There's been reference to the fact that is it fair or not fair that insurance covers some of this stuff? Well, okay, you're, imagine you've lived in a country that actually had a rational national health system. <laughs> imagine. 
coming soon to you here. No, um, what would be a rational, what's a rational health system to do? Who are you, what are you going to cover? How are you going to make a decision? You might say easy no to octuplets, but there are a lot of other questions, including the questions about what are you diverting resources away from when you divert towards the coverage of this stuff. So um, this is all a great big tease, as you can tell. I have no answers. I'm only trying to say that I th think that as we try to figure it out in the United States, we should think of ourselves as being global citizens and part and parcel of patterns that are happening to lots of other folks. And then maybe we can try to figure out what does it mean to have these most intimate activities and relationships in this brave new world. Thanks. I'd like to thank the BCRW for organizing this exciting conference. I've already learned a tremendous amount, and it's only been going on for an hour and a half. One of the problems that the conference seeks to address is, quote, how do we ensure that marginalized individuals, for example, people with disabilities, women of color, and low-income women have equal access to these new technologies and adoption practices. Before we can meaningfully answer the question of how to ensure equal access, I think we should think about how to frame the process, these processes of marginalization and exclusion. We need to first elaborate theoretical frameworks that explain structural inequality and how this is manifested in the lives of women, both in theory and in practice. So I'd like to put forward two concepts that can help us, I think, to keep structured inequality in mind throughout the conference. One is a relatively new concept, and that's global apartheid, and the other is a concept that's about 20 years old, stratified reproduction, but I think it deserves a long life, so I'm going to talk about it again. Uh, global apartheid is a term that describes the global political economy of inequality. And it was popularized at a United Nations conference against racism held in Durban, South Africa in 2001. And interestingly, that was the same year that the World Health Organization met to discuss the global implications of assisted reproductive technology. And one of the issues was whether assisted reproductive technology services are justifiable in poor countries. Booker and Minter have defined global apartheid as, quote, an international system of minority rule whose attributes include differential access to basic human rights, wealth and power structured by race and place, structural racism embedded in global economic processes, political institutions, and cultural assumptions, and the international practice of double standards that assume inferior rights to be appropriate for certain others defined by location, 
origin, race, or gender. And I think this is an important framework because first it, incorpora it incorporates a non-essentialist concept of race and it speaks to the global processes of marginalization by location, origin, race, and gender. The conference and its accompanying NGO forum was attended by racialized women all over the world. And this included the Dalits, formerly known as untouchables from India, the Roma, formerly known as gypsies from Europe, the Burkunin from Japan, as well as indigenous peoples and peoples of African descent. And I think one of the really good things about the conference, there were several problematic things, but one of the really good things was that women's voices really resounded as activists from all over the world sought connections among diverse struggles, learned from each other, and developed models of communication and cooperation. And of course, one of the issues was global apartheid and reproduction and reproductive rights. The global apartheid lens focuses our attention on the way in which the globalization of assisted reproductive technology and to a lesser extent, transnational adoption, mirrors north-south divisions and perhaps deepens global stratification. The concept of global apartheid provides an analytic frame for comprehending how different populations are affected by reproductive tourism, transnational adoption, the testing of birth control, pharmaceutics, and procedures on third world women, experimentation on women, all the things that were mentioned today. It also has something to say about the relationship between the global panic around falling birth rates of white women and the anti-immigration frenzy. And this is true uh, in many areas of the world. Uh, there's an interesting article by an anthropologist who writes about Italy, and she points out that the science of demography uh, positions itself as being neutral. And we know all the issues with that. But the science of demography talks about the rates of birth, the falling rates of birth in Italy among Italian women and the uh, higher rates of birth among immigrant women from North Africa, for example. And the politicians then take the, the neutral words of, the of uh, demography and turn it into a campaign against immigrants. But it's not only a campaign against immigrants, it's also a campaign against Italian women who are controlling their birth rate. So these things uh, become quite interesting. The concept of stratified reproduction was developed almost two decades ago. It was presented by Shelley Colin, who actually did work on transnational uh, uh, nannies. And it was elaborated at a Wenigren conference organized by Faith Ginsburg and Raina Rapp, who are probably here, who are on the program. And the concept was popularized in their classic edited volume, conceiving the new world order. So the concept of stratified reproduction speaks to, quote, power relations by which some categories of people 
are empowered to nurture and reproduce while others are disempowered. This framework encourages us to interrogate the intersections of sexuality, race, and class, and to ask how assisted reproductive technology functions to reflect and reproduce existing racial hierarchies. For example, as Dorothy Roberts notes, despite a higher rate of infertility among African-American women as compared to Euro-American women, African-American women do not have access, generally do not have access to assisted reproduction for a variety of reasons. Uh, there, there's the issue of high cost and the fact that it's not covered by insurance in many states, but also the issue of racial steering through diagnosis. Are they diagnosed as infertile, which allows them to take advantage of some of this technology? She asks, quote, what does it mean that white women disproportionately undertake expensive technologies that allow them to reproduce and women of color disproportionately undergo procedures and medications to, present, to prevent reproduction. And on this subject, uh, Iris Lopez, who you'll see uh, chairing a panel later in the afternoon, has just come out with a wonderful book, which is a 25-year study, study of Puerto Rican women and sterilization and re reproduction. Uh, called Matters of Choice, Puerto Rican Women's Struggle for Reproductive Freedom. My own research among African-American women in central Harlem sought to understand why African-American women have higher rates of problematic birth outcomes regardless of their socioeconomic position and why they fare worse than white women at every economic level and why even college-educated African-American women had twice the infant mortality rate of college-educated white women. Uh, we explored the environmental, educational, and health care impediments to reproduction and documented the ways in which women are active participants in trying to transform these conditions. Now these studies and studies like them raise questions about the extent to which disparities in birth outcomes, for example, might be increased through funding medical procedures that can only be used by the wealthy rather than directing funds towards improving basic health care. In other words, they seek to clarify the racialized consequences of reliance on and investment in high, tech, high technology in this area. Finally, I think it's important to ask how assisted reproductive technology, with its emphasis on genetic engineering and its emphasis on racial characteristics, as you can see from the slides, as it currently functions, to what extent does it reify and indeed reinscribe race? Now, in the United States, there have been major advances in both scholarly and popular understandings of race. And there is a broader understanding of race as being a social construction, as being mutable, as being dynamic, as opposed to being uh, biological. And as a social scientist who writes on race, 
I have to say that I was very gratified during the primaries to hear uh, Chris Matthews on MSNBC. He's actually gone back to some of his problems, but um, <laughs> he, he was pretty good during the primary. But to hear him at, talk about the way in which the candidate Obama was being racialized. I thought this was like a major step that on the media, people were talking about people being racialized as opposed to being peop uh, people being uh, you know, of a particular race. In other, in other words, race racialization is a process. Uh, one group of people does it to another. It's a relationship between people. And I thought that was um, a good step. Um, also, I think the election of President Obama is a major event, even if some people were voting for his white half. No. Well, people said this. Okay. Now, at, at the same time, as we make progress on the old tropes of racism, there are new sites of racialization, such as the prison industrial complex, particularly as it is fed by the foster care system and more indirectly by the transnational adoption network. And my question for us is, will assisted reproductive technology become yet another site of racialization? And there's excellent work by uh, one of my graduate students, Tina Lee, who's just finished her dissertation on stratified reproduction and the New York City foster care system. And hopefully it'll come out as a book soon. So let me conclude by stating the obvious. This is not a zero-sum game. Advances in reproductive technology have tremendous potential for all women who desire to reproduce. And this is also true in societies where childless women are subject to intense stigmatization. But as always, for those of us interested in analyzing inequality, the major question to be addressed is that of the global social relations within which this technology functions. And I hope we will keep this in mind throughout the conference. Good afternoon, my name is Loretta Ross. I'm with Sister Song, and I have the unique position of probably being the only non-academic getting a chance to speak. But even then, I'm faking it. I am actually a PhD candidate, but I try not to come out the closet <laughs> on that. I've managed 55 years without the credentials, and now I prefer not to speak in all the postmodernist language they're trying to force feed down my throat. <laughs> I'm in women's studies, and have y'all noticed how far divorced women's studies is from women's lives? Just a little note. I really don't know what I'm going to say because everything I wanted to say or thought I was going to say, somebody else said better. So I've been over there kind of scribbling notes around the margins of my speech, and it's, you're going to hear from the margins, both literally and figuratively, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I do represent Sister Song, for those of you who don't know. We're a national coalition of more than 80 women of color and allied organizations that work on these issues, that work on all kinds of reproductive health issues. And we've created our own framework 
for describing our reality called reproductive justice. And for those of you unfamiliar with that framework, if you're familiar with critical race theory and the concept of intersectionality, we've applied it to reproductive politics and look at the ways reproduction is stratified by these intersectional identities that we all have. And we came to this realization based on our perception as women of color that we joined the pro-choice movement in its commitment to fight for the right for women not to have kids. You know, the fight for the right for abortion and the right to use birth control and the right to use abstinence if you can hang on. But <laughs> I mean, there are folks who can, they say. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, but we depart from the pro-choice movement because we are women of color and we come from communities consistently and for 500 years have been targeted for strategies of population control. So we have to fight equally as hard for the right to have kids and to resist all these forms of population control even as we fight for individual self-determination for women. So we've always had these dual values within our consciousness. And then thirdly, we have to fight for the right to parent the children that we have. I mean, I don't have time to talk about the numerous ways our right to be parents is interfered with. Let's just talk about the most obvious, the tracking of our children from schools to jails. I mean, barely without a call to the parents along the way. And so that differentiates us from the pro-choice movement. And we rest our demands for these rights on something that goes in our minds way beyond the US Constitution, and that is the human rights framework. And so we use a human rights approach to demanding reproductive justice. So having said all of that, and I was thinking about what I would say today, I was like, oh my god, here we are, the premier organization fighting for the right to have children, and then here comes Octomom. And we're like, how do we explain her? How do we come to her defense? How do we first say, thank God she's not black? <laughs> and appreciate all of that. And at the same time say, okay, are there limits on this right to have children? Are these rights absolute? Would this even be a conversation if she weren't poor? Yeah, all of these things are coming up and rolling around in our conversation. And someone asked me earlier, has Sister Song taken a position on the octuplets mom? And I'm like, what would we say that makes sense? But there's a lot that has been said. Now, in terms of reproductive technologies, one question that we are clear that we consistently ask from the margins is this reinforcement, the reification of biological determinism that has led to eugenics, genocide in the past. Why are we not convincing women that they are in fact reinforcing the patriarchy by insisting on having children born with their own genetic material? Where did we lose that memo? 
about how patriarchy is constructed and now we're fighting for our right to do it better? I mean, there's something wrong with our whole discourse on this that's missing the, the eugenical aspects that we are reinforcing as we debate the how. We're not necessarily debating the should. <laughs> you know, people express their right to be parents only biologically or predominantly biologically, and we have a problem with that. And then, as we talk about the health disparities between who has access to reproductive technologies and who will be deselected by reproductive technologies, including people with disabilities who have the right to be here, who have the right to have enabling environments, why are we not asking the question that the whole conversation around disparity begs the question of whether or not the standard that is being used as the norm is so woefully inadequate anyway. Why would women of color fight to be equally exploited to white women? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. If we're offering a critique about the cultivation and harvesting of eggs and, and what's happening to people, why would we want to fight to have equal access to that system? This doesn't make sense either. So I don't know what we're going to say. But I do know that there's a lot being said about the Octomom. And I'll just repeat some of the conversations we've overheard within the communities of color and outside that represent Sister Song. A lot of people say she has the right to have a baby, but that doesn't entitle her to the technology. That the technology, in fact, should be reserved for those with the means to support the families that they have. Oh, by the way, before I go much further, I want to call attention to the fact that of the Sister Song family, I am not the person who should be here speaking. There is a wonderful group within Sister Song called Generations Ahead that is a group of women of color and others who focus on reproductive technologies. So I had to call them to ask them what I should say. So sometimes you shouldn't choose the person who's best known from an organization, but ask the organization who's the best representative. Just a note to the file next time. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving right along. There are those people who say that the market will regulate itself. Oh, yeah, like this is a surprise to y'all. <laughs> I mean, isn't President Obama getting an earful of that all the time? But then there are those who also say that the market needs deep regulation to, to avoid abuses. And I have to honestly say, I don't know where Sister Song will come down on this, because we do know that there are times in terms of injustice when intervention by the government is necessary. But we also know that a government that is contaminated by racism and xenophobia and sexism and homophobia will not intervene necessarily in the way we would like them to do so. And so we don't know where the regulation is. 
And then there are a number of people who say that six women who have six kids shouldn't be allowed medical treatment to have additional ones. But to make that work, that means someone else is going to decide how many kids somebody else should have. Others deciding on others' children. We've heard that before. It is called genocide. And do we want to embark on that slippery slope, no matter how self-righteous we are about our rationale for taking that first step? And then there are the feminists, some feminists, who say that forget how many kids she has and how many, whether she can support them or not. Let's celebrate women's autonomy, women's right to make their decisions for themselves. And some of us are saying, yeah, but I fight for the right of women to make their decisions for themselves. But that doesn't mean I have to support every decision every woman makes. I ain't that crazy. <laughs> it, it just doesn't work that way. And then when I think about some of the technological aspects of what we're dealing with, first of all, I just have to joke and say, we're talking about reproductive technologies that makes A-Rod's use of steroids look quite antiquated. <laughs> I mean, if in a dozen years we're going to have designer baseball players, how can we dare criticize him for getting a jump on science? I mean, he just saw the brave new world coming and made it come a little quicker. But it's also going to have to make us go a little step backwards because as Sister Song, we're an organization that advocates for the right of young people to have healthy sex and sexuality which flies in the face of a lot of popular thinking that's really prohibitionist around the question of teens and sex. I mean, it's kind of like everybody's legs kind of clutch together when they think of their kid actually becoming sexually active. And so, but it's kind of interesting to watch Wendy's slides, I think it was, and showing that, well, not. Guess what Mother Nature has actually spoken and said the best time to have a child is when you're a teenager and in your young 20s. What a remarkable development that is. But we've been shifting the marriage age higher while the plumbing has not caught up. Huh? And I really believe that we're going to have to reorient our thinking around providing better supports to teens and young mothers, and their quite naturally occurring sexuality, rather than to deny them this support, punish them for being sexually uh, active, and then try to fix on the later end in our 40s and 50s with technologies, behaviors we maybe should have engaged in at a little bit younger age. There is a whole question around that. I know. In this kind of society, we're not supposed to talk about horny kids, but <laughs> I deal with horny kids all the time. Hell, I deal with a horny postmenopausal woman. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, moving right along. I want to close because I do want to save some time for discussion with some of the real dangers in not taking up these conversations that are on the horizon already. We need new social values and ethical systems to frame these issues. 
and from which to start proposing policy and developing laws. But if we propose these policies and laws from our current situation, we're going to end up with racist policy, sexist policy, homophobic policy, and policy that, per that punishes the victims and really rewards the perpetrators. Uh, do bank bailouts come to mind? And so <laughs> we have to have whole new frameworks, and that's why we encourage people to examine the efficacy of the human rights framework, but we also are doing this in the context as we're undergoing a major redefinition of what is human. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, how are we gonna think all of this out? But right now, we within Sister Song, Generations Ahead, the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, not Park. Miriam, are you still in the audience? Could you wave? All right, hey, back there. Uh, Manavi, which is an Asian American women's domestic violence organization, have banded together to fight a new bill that we think will be introduced in Congress this year by Representative Trent Franks from Arizona, who's a self-proclaimed Reagan Republican, so you kind of have an idea where his political tendencies are. And he's introduced a bill called the Pregnancy Non-Discrimination Act. Prenda, I believe. And basically what he's trying to do is ban the use of abortion for what he calls sex and race selection in the United States. Now, you have to kind of deal with this stuff separately. Of course, we as feminists, we identified and named the deselection of girls worldwide as a problem. <coughs> So there's no way a Republican beat us to the starting gate on this one. What he's trying to do is co-opt our concern about the deselection of girls and turn it into opposition to abortion. And we're not fooled. And what's so crazy about this is that there's no real proof that deselection of girls is happening in the United States because to the extent to which we have data where women are choosing to gender balance their families, they're actually preferring to have girls because they have too many boys. So to the extent that sex selection is taking place, it actually is going in the other way than his bill says it's actually going. And so he's attempted to drive a wedge into the communities that are fighting sex selection that happens against girls by trying to peel them off and get them to support basically anti-abortion legislation. And it's presenting quite a, 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 a challenge for many of us to have that conversation. But even more pernicious than that, because that's pretty clear cut, he's creating something totally out of thin air. And that is this concept that black babies and babies of color are being aborted because of their race. That's what race deselection means. And so virtually every woman of color who chooses to have abortion may be prohibited from doing so because who's to say she's not doing it to reduce the black race? Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. <laughs> Basically, we're the architects of our own genocide. 
is what they are accusing us of. But unfortunately, they are making considerable inroads into the black anti-abortion sentiment within our ultra-religious communities that then are saying, yes, we're committing race genocide, race suicide, and we have to control the behavior of these women, et cetera. So this is a use of technology that's already occurring in the public policy arena that we're scarcely prepared to organize and fight against, and we fully expect Representative Franks to reintroduce this bill again in the future. The other thing that we have to be concerned about is that we can't leave this battle to traditional reproductive rights organizations. Because if they had just taken on the Trent Franks bill, for example, they would have framed it simply as a fight to defend abortion rights, ignoring the gender, the more nuanced gender and race, racialized issues that are contained within that, the health disparities that exist within our society. Uh, we, as women of color in the leadership of this work, have to acknowledge these concerns and organize in the Asian American, in the African American, the Latina, the Native American community. Oh, by the way, speaking of Native Americans, some, one topic that has not yet been lifted, and that is biopiracy and the theft of genetic material from indigenous cultures from around the world that absolutely needs to be at the front of many of our agendas as well. And so I'm gonna close. As we get into trait selections for sex, skin color, athleticism, height, more of these things become more available, we have to figure out how we're going to fight to maintain the diversity of humanity. And is this a value that we really treasure and will put at the top of our agendas? Or will Hitler's dream come true simply because we fail to pay attention at the right moments when significant discussions and policies were being made? Thank you.